think of the Bennies, Jeff and Rebecca, tremendous amount of preparation for this class, the amount of work that's, that's gone into it. So thank you for all the work that you've done on it. Sure. Well, welcome to week 10. So you should be experts in poverty alleviation at this point, or at least understand the terms. Uh, last week, uh, just to remind you, we're, we're on part four, which is how to choose where to spend my time and money in poverty alleviation. Uh, poverty will never, ever go away. Because we know when we looked at the Old Testament, there were there was poverty in the people of Israel. And there were rules on how to deal with that. Uh, it's, like, uh, it's like we say in designing systems. I, I do a lot of work on designing process in the healthcare system. And we have, a, we have a saying, it says, it's hard to design an idiot-proof system because the idiots are so inventive. Uh, no matter, it's like no matter what you design, somebody's going to figure out a way to mess it up. Uh, and, and, and they're going to mess it up in ways that you'd never thought of. Uh, and so, yes. And then that's why poverty is that you, you, you can teach and you can structure and you can do stuff, but people will still manage either through actions of their own or, or more, more commonly across the world, actions of people outside their control uh, to get themselves into poverty. And so as our response as Christians is, is to come up with ways to the best of our ability to alleviate that. Uh, as you remember, last week we finished on the contributor. We were just picking uh, uh, missions and that we happened to pick the contributor because, mainly because I didn't know a lot about it, and so I looked at it. And then I found out that Otter Creek is one of the sponsors of the contributor uh, in looking at it. Uh, and so this week, Room at the End came and talked to us, what, seven weeks ago? But we thought it would be instructive to look at how Room at the End structures and contrast that with the contributor because they, they, they're both approaching the same problem which is homelessness but they do it in two totally different ways which is very interesting uh, because I said last week one of the issues I have with the contributor is that I don't see a lot of discipleship or development occurring in their structure uh, and so when we looked at room at the end it's very interesting uh, their mission to provide programs that emphasize human development and recovery they're probably reading the same books I am. Uh, through education, self-work, self-help, and work centered in the community and long-term support for those who call the streets of Nashville home. Our core values, through the power of spirituality and the practice of love, we provide hospitality with a respect that offers hope in a community of nonviolence. Uh, that's a very good encapsulation of what we've been talking about the last <coughs> nine weeks, is that you we talked about, you know, there's relief. You immediately have to stop the bleeding, if you will. And then you do recovery and then development, which is longer term. Uh, room at the End does both. It, it's a unique in a lot of its structure in that it's, it's a huge relief organization. 
Uh, I mean, uh, what they what they say? Uh, I think there. I think the fourteen hundred was said daily. Hang on. Yes, that should be. I think that's daily because they have. That's fourteen. It's fourteen in hundred churches. Right. Yes. So yeah, here this is this is their their FAQ website. Uh, they have, by the way, a better website writer than the contributor does. We got back to what we talked about as a communication issue. They have a really good communication person in charge of this because whatever you want to find, it's on their website. Uh, so uh, there you go. 60,000 overnight stays per year, which is obviously a relief function. That's, let's get people off the streets. It's cold. It's wet. Let's get them to where they're not sleeping in the snow and the rain and the ice. But they also have a developmental arm, which takes people that are willing to work with them. Uh, and I'm trying to think. Uh, where, where? Oh, right here. They have 3,000 classes. 44,000 instructional hours annually covering subjects ranging from spirituality to GE preparation. So it's a, they take people that are willing, that come in the front door through relief, that are willing to work, and they walk them through a recovery development uh, process. And then they have, uh, I think, 38, in their new facility, 38 uh, one-room apartments, essentially, where you can transition and go through some of this development and then get out on your own. Because the, the final purpose, as you might imagine, is not to house these people long-term, it's to help them develop to the point where they are self-supporting. In which case, as a Christian, your role then is once you're self-supporting, to turn around and help other people to get to that point. Uh, and so, th this uh, some of you probably missed some of the conversation after class last week about the contributor. And one of the reasons is that they intentionally were set up as a, not a relief organization, not a development organization, one that I've never seen before in looking at uh, poverty alleviations, just a recovery effort, which is very interesting. They are specifically not developmental. Uh, and so to, to me, in everything I've learned, this is a much better solution in that you can't, you can't stop with you can't start the recovery process and then quit. And, that, and that's one of the issues I have uh, just based on talking with them a little bit is that they need to, they need to get into development. If, if you're going to teach people work ethic and you're going to give them an income, you need to teach them and partner with them and teach them how do you move on to the next step. Uh, because one, one, I'll get, give you a minute, William. One of the things that is very interesting here was uh, Room at the End recognizes there are, there are two major types of homelessness in Nashville. You have uh, first-time or transit homelessness. You know, when you look longitudinally, homelessness is generally not a, once I'm on the street, I stay on the street for the rest of my life. People tend to go in and out. Uh, and room at the end with a, a lot with their tremendous amount of exposure to the homeless. There, there are two populations that you're serving. One is temporary, which most of it revolves around job loss or illness, 
uh, something they you know they don't have reserves they lose a job all of a sudden they're on the streets that's a crisis, yes. And then you have, the other 50% are chronically homeless. Now, when you, think, when you say homeless, most people jump to chronically homeless. I mean, because if I ask people here in the room, how many of the homeless are alcoholic or have drug abuse problems? How many of them are psychiatrically ill? Most of us would jump and say, yeah, they all are. Well, there's not, there's two distinct populations. They get inter intermixed. And then what works for one population does not work for the other. And that gets back to this whole concept of how do you help without hurting. If you take someone with a substance abuse problem that is not, that they don't have under control or don't have support for, and you give them a job that gives them money, what, what are they going to do? They're going to spiral back down. If you give someone who is, uh, who had, got ill, lost their job, but has a good work ethic, you give them a job, what are they going to do? They're going to go up. And, you know, if you, if you uh, last week on the contributor site, there's a one, a guy has managed to buy a house on the contributor who works for the contributor. But he's very, because he's this. Because when you talk, when you read his story, his story was, I, my job was staining log cabins, which is a, which is a technical skill. If, it's not like you and I cannot stain log cabins. It's harder than it looks. But in 08, there was a problem. You know, we, we had a, a, a crisis. He lost his job. And so he then lost his house, then he lost everything, and so he was on the streets. The contributor came along. He's a guy who knows how to work. He, is not, he does not have substance abuse problems. He does not have chronic mental problems. He worked his way back through and worked, uh, you know, because in the interview when you talk with him, you realize this guy's an entrepreneur, and he understands that, and so he's now leveraged himself into the point where he is no he now runs a lawn care business, based all bought with profits from the contributor, and so he did not need development; he just needed an opportunity. But the vast majority of people who are out there are going to need recovery and development. And so that's where you have to differentiate between the two parts of homelessness. Uh, and so this, the contributor would work well for because those people, they just need opportunity. This, the contributor would be really bad for because you're now taking someone with, a, with an abuse problem or a chronic mental illness problem and trying to get them to act like someone who's not. And so that's not going to work well. Yes. So is that 50-50 split, is that representative of all homelessness, homelessness in Nashville? That, I mean, I know it's, it says it's for room in the end, but Well, that, that's basically Nashville, because room at the end is, between room at the end and uh, uh, rescue, Nashville Rescue Mission, Salvation Army, they work hand in glove because they're right next to each other. They see basically the, the, the cross spectrum of Nashville. Yes, William. Just two, two things real quick. The first thing is I want to ask a question, uh, and then I want to make a statement. Uh, the first question is, at one point the contributor was illegal to sell in Williamson County, right? It, it, no, it's not illegal to sell. You have to stand on the sidewalk. The problem, with, the the problem is you cannot stand in traffic. Right. Okay, okay. Yeah. This is a statement I want to make. I know this isn't Ed Rucker's class about the uh, therapy and substance abuse, but I want to make a... 
quick kind of like two minute statement about this because this is kind of profound. I need to tell a personal story. Well, you know, you've seen me with the care of my daughter. Uh, uh, her mother and I ended up going through a situation. We ended up breaking up. Well, I was homeless for like three weeks and uh, I ended up going to Goodwill. I staying with a friend of mine. I ended up walking into Goodwill. I needed a job. <laughs> I don't have a felony. I don't have a drug abuse or anything like that. So when I tried to apply, they said, when would you like to work? Can I start? And I said, can I start today? And they were stunned. They said, man, you're really not trying to work. I said, well, I don't have no job and I don't have no place to stay. And <laughs> after talking to them, the next day I ended up getting a job. Well, Goodwill was set up, I, and I ended up walking back to my buddy. Uh, I was crashing with him, ran into my cousin, ended up renting an apartment from him. But I walked back and forth to work, and they said, and I, I was amazed at the number of men that I met. And they said, man, how are you getting here every morning? I walked. He said, why would you do that? I don't have a place to stay. I didn't have a job. I need <laughs> a job and a place to stay. <laughs> and I, walking back and forth to Goodwill, so many people thought it was like, I, it was heroic or something like that. And I was like, dude, I I need the money. I was able to go back to school, which ended up inevitably I ended up transferring to Lipscomb, and now I'm the Ben Carson S. man that you see before you today. Um, so part of, <laughs> part of this issue of drug abuse and chronic homelessness, and I think we deal with a cultural thing here, there are a lot of systemic, generational, chronic homeless people in Nashville. And this has everything to do with, like for instance, this whole median, we can't set up a contributor thing. Like, like how, many, how many of you all have seen the contributor in Williamson County or Murray County like two or three times a week? See, I see in Nashville, you'll see it five or six times a day. Like they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those guys, like Akari's biological father, he sold a contributor when he was dealing with Erica. And he literally, took every dime of the money and he tricked it off. He literally wasted it. Because the contributor will let these guys, and I'm not dogging them, because I don't think that's their job. I think another social organization probably should do this. He didn't know what to do with money. So he would either drink it up, uh, gamble it away, buy <laughs> lottery tickets. He didn't know anything. Whereas with my situation, I said, I'm never going to be in a situation like this again. So, because I don't do the homeless thing well or at all. Whereas with him, it didn't make that much difference. But he comes from a generational, systemic, chronic homelessness, poverty, this sort of thing. And that's, I think, the issue here is. You take the organization like Room and In and Contribute and all these things, there has to be a paradigm shift. Because a lot of these cats, man, they, it doesn't mean anything to them living on the street. And it's, it's, it, I think the reason I went through the issues that I went through is to kind of learn about this. Because I had a lot of uh, ideas that a lot of these cats, you know, they were getting done wrong by the man or something like that. No, a lot of these cats really don't think they can do anything else. And that's where we have to, as Christians, have to create this paradigm shift. Yeah, and, and I, I, you know, I, I've stayed with volunteer is that there isn't this neat dividing line mm -hmm. that divides who's chronic and who's temporary homeless, right? There isn't this easy definition. Some of them who are on either end of the spectrum, you can easily identify, but the ones in the middle, I, I, I mean, maybe they became homeless because a lot of them were divorced <clears throat> uh, or, or they've been in jail. You know, something like that has disrupted their life. Um, but then 
the impetus or the effort to get back up on that horse and ride and do what you need to do to go forward in your life, it might take these guys a couple of years to run through that whole thing, yeah. maybe even longer. A decade. So, so you, so are they chronically homeless or are they a temporary setback? Well, at two to three years, you know, it's kind of hard to tell, right? Yeah. And and so, a, a lot of the guys who who we take care of here uh, at Room in the Inn. They do have jobs. They have a lot of child support requirements that are levied on them. They have a lot of other expenses. They, they, they generally don't have good credit, so they can't get a place to live unless they can pay well in advance. Uh, so these are challenges that they have that, that are hard to overcome in a short period of time. So even if they're trying, sometimes they, are, they do look like chronic homeless. So Right, yeah, and that, that's the, the issue is that it, without a relationship with them, it is very difficult to figure out which ones. How, how do you help someone that you don't have a relationship? If you go back to our visitor from San Diego that talked, he said, what's the first thing you have to do? Well, you have to sit down with them and ask them what they want. Like you said, there are a lot of guys that say, yeah, I'm pretty good. You know, I want to live, I, I don't want to be tied down. You know, as long as the weather's nice, you know, they kind of live outside. Yeah, which is, and you don't think, you wouldn't think that that was something that was an, even an option, but I've heard guys say that, like even in working in Goodwill, I have huge issues with the treatment of the work at Goodwill because I think they sometimes take advantage of people with felonies. The thing about Goodwill, so many of those guys, they just, he said, I ain't going to work, I don't care what nobody said. <laughs> I'm like, dog, how are you going to make, it's like, it's basic, like, how are you going to survive? And that wasn't. And, and that's why I say the paradigm shift, because after a while, if you stay in these social service organizations, and this may be controversial, you will be on the far end of being chronically unemployed, uh, homeless, uh, and you know, I, I think it, at a certain point it destroys you. Like you were going from back from place to place to place until finally you're not able to work. You're just not able. So. <clears throat> yeah, it was interesting because I actually was reading. Actually, got on Reddit this morning and put in homelessness and uh, barriers to uh, advancement. It's very because they have lots of good conversations on there about people talk about like the, that exact thing. They said if you spent your whole life waiting in line at all these social services, <laughs> says, you, you, you can't ever work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, my my favorite story is I don't I have a social security number. I don't have a card. The state of Kentucky, for Kentucky Medicaid, has decided that all physicians who bill them have to give them a copy of their card. Ignore the fact I've got a federal DEI license, I've got like 16 licenses. I had to have a copy of my card. Have you, anyone been to the Social Security Administration? Recent? So I figured I could do that online. Can't do that. I said, okay, I'll stop by there on lunch. All right, I walked through, got my metal. First of all, you have to go through a metal detector. There is literally 350 people sitting in chairs. And you pick up a, a tag that is like T38. And you realize every window has a different number. And then, like, I'm sitting there, and they call T3. And I realize that I am going to be a long time before I get helped. 
And so I went and talked to the guards. I said, all right, guys, have, you guys work here every day. What's the quickest way to get through? All I need is a copy of my card. He goes, oh, show up at 8.45. We open the doors at 9. He says, get in line. And because most people here are getting, are, are married, changing their thing, or they're applying for ADC, or they're applying for citizenship stuff, which are totally different windows. So if you get here before we open, stand in line for half an hour, we'll get you in and you grab your ticket, you'll be like second or third. So I had an off day coming up, so I went down there and I did that. And sure enough, I, you know, I only had to wait 35 minutes. But you weren't gonna lose your job if you had to give a day to that. Right, because I had an off day. The mom that I've loved so much at the daycare center, if she has to do that, she can't get there because she can't leave home until she can get her children to school and then she's got to take the bus because she can't drive. Right. And so the viciousness of the cycle. Well, that was. To that, get food stamps, you have to yes. take a day off every so often. Because that's also, by the way, the office you have to go to for food stamps to, is well, Social to Security. Well, to attend a class on how to use the food. And I get why that might be a good thing, but it means a day off because she's got to ride the bus out there for the class, which is scheduled <coughs> at 10 o'clock. Who schedules 10 o'clock when people need to work? Then she's got to ride the bus back to her job. Now remember, it cost her two bus passes to do that. And yet, when she gets back, she's only gonna get four hours of work and hope that they'll forgive her that she had to miss. Yes, I have decided that in my next life that I'm coming back as a Social Security Administration employee. <laughs> They don't get there till 8.58. Because I, park, I parked in the back parking lot. I, I figured they're not towing my car. I parked in the reserve for employees lot because all the rest of them are like two blocks away. And so there's nobody in the employee lot at 8.58. So I parked there and I'm going like, surely these guys, no, no, no. They don't get there till nine o'clock. And, that, and they, don't, they don't start at nine o'clock. They open the doors at nine o'clock. And then I see the little bulletproof glass, the guys are sitting behind it doing whatever. And they get, a, they get their lunch. And let me tell you, at 4.30, the doors go click, they're done. Uh, I said, that's, that's a good job. I'm gonna have to, have to get that. Work for the Social Security Administration. It, it was very funny, because when I went up and he asked me what I wanted, I told him, he goes, and I was the other guy I think they've ever seen, I actually had like all the documents I'm supposed to have, my passport, my driver's license. Because he literally goes, you got all that? I said, yeah. He goes, oh, good. It's just been like two minutes. And it literally took him two minutes to put it in the computer. And he handed me my thing back and said, it'll come in the mail next week. He was ecstatic that I had all my stuff. Uh, but that, but I, could, oh, I could see if you had to stand in line of bureaucracy, you would, you would go, you, right, you can't have a job. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there are lots of obstacles. Uh, And then I'm also, by the way, the guest speaker today on Chikande Health. Uh, talk about taking the same poverty alleviation, homelessness, and putting it in a third world context. Uh, in fact, Jane and I are getting on the airplane at 6.30 at night heading to Malawi. Uh, how the same poverty alleviation works overseas as it works here, it, it's remarkably similar. Uh, in Africa, in Malawi, Hardly anybody has housing because you can't afford anything. Nobody's got jobs. 
And so it's a, uh, so as you structure stuff there, you have to structure it very, very similarly. So, so where do they, if you say that they don't have housing, where do they stay? Uh, you, they stay in the villages with their parents. They, uh, it's, a, it's a very mild climate. You can stay outside a lot. It, it doesn't get hot, doesn't get real cold. Uh, it rains about six months out of the year. Uh, into the into the villages and just hang out under the edge of the other houses. Uh, one of the biggest issues in uh, third world countries is uh, where are we at? Uh, for like Chikando, we run Blessings Hospital uh, because th there's a lot of they don't have any they don't have much access to healthcare. So that's part of what we do. Uh, but we also, our mission statement is to glorify God and Jesus by promoting spiritual and physical health. Uh, when you're doing healthcare in the third world, it's really easy just to do healthcare and not do discipleship. And so the hard part of doing healthcare is to tie that discipleship back with the healthcare. And uh, Trikandi Health is not, we are not a relief organization. We don't do healthcare relief. Uh, other than on an individual basis, if you have a healthcare crisis and the hospital's open, it helps you get through that. So we're, we are more of a recovery developmental uh, mission group. Well, what we do is we run Blessings Hospital and then we run a uh, village outreach health service that goes to the villages and provides health care. But the way we tie that into, into uh, discipleship is that we do it through the churches in the local villages so that the villages are, the health care clinics are church-based. And so people come to the church and then they also get to interact with leaders of the church at that time. So people, in Africa, it's, that's, here, healthcare and, and religion is so divorced that you know, even at St. Thomas and St. Thomas Midtown, St. Thomas West, it's very, it's very uh, I don't know, unchristian is not the right word. Separate. It's very separate. You can see the sisters at West if you want. Uh, there's no sisters at Midtown because it used to be Baptist and they don't allow the, the nuns in there, I don't think. Yes. Yeah. But it's it, but the chaplain doesn't work for the it's interesting that even at Midtown's chaplain does not work for the hospital. He's a volunteer. Uh, in Africa, it's far more people are far more religion permeates everything. So if you went to a healthcare clinic and they ask if the and the doctor or the clinical officer or the nurse asked if she could pray with you, that would be normal. And so it's uh, so by creating clinics that exist in the church, people come to the church and they, they meet the people there and they start establishing relationships. Uh, because everything is relational, as, as the Americans who go over there, it's not really my job to create long-term relations with the people in the villages because obviously I can't commute 19,858 miles every day. It's a really long flight. 
but my job is to help create a environment where the Malawian staff can create relationships and then start the discipleship process. Uh, and then what Conde also does is provides an advisor role for Malawian leadership at Blessings Hospital. Uh, the backstory on Blessings is it was created by another uh, church, North American church organization that did not create, did not uh, do development for the Malawian leadership. So when the Americans left, they left them a 100-bed hospital and no one knew how to run it. And it takes about 18, by the way, it takes about 18 months for them to spend all their money when you do that. Uh, and it closed down, and so we were asked to come in and open it again. And so what we have learned is that if you're, you have to develop. It, it's, it's relation, the relationships I have in Malawi are with the administrators of the hospital, with the clinical officers, the people I interact with all the time. Uh, and so we're teaching them how to run a hospital. Uh, we sent, in fact, we sent one to school for the last two years to get his, the equivalent of his MHA, Master's in Health Administration. That's not what they call it, but when we looked at this thing, we realized that's really what it was. Uh, and so we've also developed a mentor for him, because he's never run a hospital before. And one of the guys we have developed a relationship with used to run the international airport there. So he's used to running big, complex, expensive things. And so we put those two guys together as a mentoring relationship. That's an, uh, yes? An awkward question. I'm, I'm awkward. Uh, is, is Meharry Medical College, uh, Howard University, or uh, Morehouse College of Medicine, have you ever seen any historical black college and university medical schools or African-American run, African-American based organizations that are involved in this kind of relief in Africa? Mm -hmm. That's a no. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, I've seen some doctors who are on staff at one of the, those two been, be, go to Haiti, but that's as far as I've seen them. And you're, go, you're going as a what nonprofit? Chikande Health. Chikande Health, and that's an organization that you... That, that we started. It's based in Montgomery, Alabama. When you said we, are you referring to... Me and 10, o, 10 other of us who... Doctors. Okay. Well, some doctors, some administrators, <laughs> a missions minister from a church, an accountant, a lawyer... Yeah, it sounds it sounds like a joke. You know, you take an accountant, a lawyer, a doctor, and they're going to do something in Africa. Uh, yeah, stranded on an island. That's right. And you all Church of Christ. They're all yes. All all the ones on the boards are Church of Christ. And and you all all have to be Caucasian American. All no. Okay. It's uh, we've got uh, our lawyer is African American. Uh, although I, he drives a Volvo, so I, I, I tell him all the time I'm not. <laughs> I said I said I. I that's what that's what I said. I'm, I'm, I, that's what I tell him all the time. I said, I'm not Jerome. I'm not sure you uh, you really count. And, and he plays tennis. Doesn't play bad. Plays tennis and drives a Volvo. So. Uh, and he's a lawyer. And he's a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But yeah, but there there are a lot. And so what we try to do is we try to raise up the leadership of the Malawians. Mm -hmm. And I, I tell the guys all the time on the board, our purpose is in 20 years not to have to be here. Our job is to create a self-sustaining organization that can do what we need to do in Malawi without us coming in all the time and helping them. 
and, that, and that's the perfect, that's, I mean, that's development. When you, when you get to the end of development, you know, they got to be independent. It's like when you're raising your kids. You don't raise your kids to live in your house when they're 55 years old. For, I mean, permanently in your house. They may transiently live in. I, I, must, I, I lived with my parents for a month when my house was being built. But, uh, you know, the idea is you want, you want independent people. You don't want dependent, you don't want to create dependency. The, the reason I ask that question, though, uh, Doc, is because I, I, the, the, like when you said Mass and Health uh, Administration, that opportunity to do something <coughs> like that, to really teach someone how to run a hospital, it's invaluable. Like, I, I guarantee you that those, the Malawians, are going to be more prepared to run a hospital than just about anybody in the world because they're getting a heck of an education. So it would seem like Meharry Medical College or Howard University, what I call the Mohawk School of Medicine, would want to do something like that just because of the learning opportunity for their students. Does that make sense or is that, is that not? Like well, I mean, a lot of, you'll find that most of the medical schools around the United States run a foreign hospital somewhere. Okay. Meharry has one in Kenya. Okay. Uh, Washington University of St. Louis has one in somewhere in West Africa. Uh, it, it's very, and Columbia University's got one in Sierra Leone. In fact, it was their hospital was like the head of the, was the uh, head of the uh, Ebola okay. fight. And so you, you'll find that a lot. Although the interesting part is most medical schools are so, most American universities that run medical schools are so anti-religious yeah. that there's no religion in their it's funny because but almost all their staff at these hospitals are conservative Christian because that's who works for healthcare in most of the third world. Yes? One of the things that strikes me about this is a very intentional <clears throat> role that may not be in the short term the most satisfying. Let me see if I can flush this out. In other words, I would suspect that there's something very warm and fuzzy about providing direct service and, and, and seeing, doing a surgery or something that sees direct healing. And, and, and I, think that, I think there's a lot of that done. Mm -hmm. But you've chosen something that is much more kind of educational, much more mentoring, <coughs> which might not be as immediately satisfying in some ways but in the long term produces a better outcome. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to be aware of, there's something we tend to want, at, at, at Christmas time, we tend to get a lovely response at the Wayne Reed Center. <coughs> I can go out and find people that will bring Christmas presents for the children. That's not hard money to raise, usually, because it just feels good. But the hard money to raise is keeping the lights on at the center because that doesn't feel so satisfying. And I don't know that it's wrong to give in ways that we can feel satisfaction about, but our ultimate goal is to serve whoever, not to serve our own feelings. Does that make sense? Right. It gets back to the name of this class, How to Help Without Hurting. The original operators of Blessings Hospitals helped a lot of people when they ran, built the hospital and ran it. But they were looking very short term 
and the, the issue is if you look at the, if you take a 10-year, 15-year view, you realize you've got to develop other people to, re, you know, if nothing else, you got you got to develop other people to replace yourself, because we're not guaranteed to be here in 10 years or 15 years. Yeah. Uh, and so part of that is, you know, you have to develop, you got to you got to identify and develop the new leaders, and that is a, that's harder because that doesn't happen really quick. Uh, you know, because the one thing we also do is uh, try to identify for professional education uh, Malawians that are in, there is a 175-kid orphanage attached to this hospital. And one of our roles is we try to identify the kids in that orphanage that are going to, that have the skills necessary and the intelligence necessary to move into healthcare. Once again, that, and that is a 15-year plan because you're going to have to identify those kids when they're upper elementary school, make sure they stay in middle school, they stay in secondary school, they get into university, and then they get into their healthcare field. So part of that is, is a very long-term uh, investment, you know, because that doesn't happen overnight. It's because it, it, with the third world educational system, you can't grab a high school graduate and say, hey, you're going to medical school because the odds are overwhelming that they're not prepared yet and that you're going to need to do some stuff. Because if, if, they're, all, if they're in a good enough school that they're going to ready to go to medical school, their parents are rich and they're in a private school. They're not in the public education system. So part of what we're doing he, here is in conjunction with 100X Ministries, which runs the uh, orphanage, and in conjunction with the Lipscomb School of Education, the School of Nursing, School of Pharmacy, we are creating a school at the orphanage that is teaching to U.S. standards, not Malawian standards, so that in six years when we finish the secondary school, when they come out, they will have the equivalent of a U.S. high school education, not a Malawian high school education. Because our, you know, it's our goal is, once again, we want to, we want to create developed leaders. And you do, and long term, that's all educational. Yeah. Hey Jeff, how yeah. many, just curious, how many jobs, how many people work for the hospital in the orphanage? Oh, uh, hospital probably employs about 30 right now. Uh, two clinical, three clinical officers, which is like a PA, uh, five or six nurses, uh, seven. Uh, midwife technicians, which is kind of like a semi-trained midwife, and then cleaning staff, uh, pharmacy, etc. And then I mean that's another ripple effect to this: is they're supporting families and able to right. provide for their families. Right. And the one thing we're actually doing is that back to the housing thing that we talked about—the homelessness—we're actually constructing staff housing here because nobody's got a house, and more importantly, nobody's got a car. So getting to work is not easy. If you, if you, and so most healthcare facilities there create housing because everyone can, you know, I'm like William, uh, they're not living a mile away. They're living like, you know, 10 miles away. It's a really long walk in the morning. Uh, and so part of what we're doing as a developmental thing is we're creating housing that belongs to the hospital that allows their staff to live in the housing so that you don't have sick call-ins. And, and if there's an emergency, all your staff lives on site. You just go knock on a door. 
In fact, the first house was given to the ambulance driver. Because A, he's the only guy who knows how to drive the ambulance. Uh, and B, if you need to go get something or take someone somewhere, you've got to have an ambulance. It's the, it's the single most important person in a, in a Malawian hospital is the ambulance driver. Because very few people know how to drive. And so that's a very important. So he got the first house. Because he's available 24, hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If they have a problem, you'll knock on his door. Yes? Um, you've, you've talked about some of the, the, the partnerships that you, uh, that you have and that you're moving into education and you're moving into housing. And, and I get how all of that is part of what you need to do, but that also seems to be the kind of area where the danger of mission creep comes in. Yes, you have, you have to be very, it's very easy for us to say, we, you know, a house in Malawi cost about $5,000 to build. So it'd be really easy to say, I'm gonna build 100 houses and just go raise money for it and give people the houses. And then that becomes mission creep because then you're not discipling them, you're not right. developing them. Uh, but we ended up getting into the staff housing problem because we couldn't hire staff because we'd find really good people and they go, well, I live in uh, Limbazi, which is 10 miles from the hospital, and I don't have a car. And then, uh, so what we decided was we were going to do some housing specifically for the staff for that exact reason, just because it's, it's a natural outgrowth of how do I staff this hospital, not because I want to get into the housing business. And then, but the educational thing is long term, it's intentional because it also dovetails with our discipleship making. If we're going to make, if we're going to raise the level of the church, the long term way that you do it is you're going to have to educate people so they can have jobs other than growing corn uh, or growing sugar cane, the two, the two things they grow there. Uh, so you, you're going to have to educate them, and the, the governmental health, the governmental education system is not doing it. And so, we we actually don't create the school. There's another foundation that does that, uh, 100X Foundation. But we we partner. We brought Lipscomb School of Education in with this, and they're they're actually have a trip that's showing up the week after I leave to do some more uh, teacher development, teacher training. All right. So the final thoughts. Uh, what was your biggest takeaway? Are there any areas where we could have spent more time? What could have been more clearly, clearly explained? I'm running out of time quickly. Uh, class tools, did you get the emails? Do you know how to get to the recordings? Well, Think ideally we wanted to kind of have like a dialogue, but yeah. we should have had that dad can't. That's right, can't. We're running out of time. That's right. Uh, his so, um, I mean, for the last couple of minutes, if anyone has anything really strong that they want to say with that. Um, but really, um, we would love to hear your feedback about things you liked, things you didn't like. Um, the recap emails kind of stopped about halfway through. That's my fault. But did you like them? Did you get them? Um, these class recordings, are you using them?